So I'm very, very delighted to welcome Catherine and Sebastian Truskolowski here with us today. So Dr. Sebastian Truskolowski is lecturer in German and comparative literature at King's College London. His research interests center on modern European philosophy from Kant to Derrida and its relation to literature and the visual arts. His first book, Adorno and the Ban on Images, was published by Bloomsbury in 2021. With Olash Rebel, he translated Adorno's correspondence with Gershom Scholen. With Ethel Leslie and Sam Dover, he has edited and translated The Storyteller, a collection of Walter Benjamin's experimental prose fiction. With Jan Sieber, he guest edited Discontinuous Infinities, a special volume of the journal Anthropology and Materialism on the Philosophy of Walter Benjamin. He's presently developing a new project on the political reception of Friedrich Hölderkuhn during the short 20th century. And Dr. Kat Moore is honorary senior lecturer in Germanic studies at, at the University of Sydney. She works on the 19th and 20th century European intellectual history, especially the critical theory of the Frankfurt School and the related figures and the traditions, intellectual roots in Marxism and German idealism. Her first book, Ernst Bloch's Speculative Materialism, Ontology, Epistemology and Politics, was published last year by Brill. She's currently working on two books, one on the reception of biology on the German left from 1830 to 1933, and an introduction to philosophy in modern German history for Bloomsbury's Modern German History series. So I'm very, very delighted to welcome the two of you, our speakers today. And without further ado, I'll hand over to you, and I believe Kat will start. Um, yeah, I will. Thanks very much, Anna and Maria uh, and Kings in general for organizing this um, session around Sebastian's book. And thanks also to Sebastian for uh, the kind invitation to, to speak and to be in conversation with you about your book. Um, today, it's not very often that uh, a friend um, invites one to to do something like this. So it's all the more of an of an honor because uh, the book is is so fantastic. Um, just want to say a bit about the format. So I'm going to say a few introductory words, not very nothing very um, long about uh, Sebastian's book, and then we're going to have a bit of conversation, um, some questions that we've uh, talked about that hopefully will flesh out um, some of the arguments that Sebastian makes in the book, and then there'll be uh, some questions and answers from uh, the audience. So the first part is going to last about 45 to 50 minutes, and the second also about 45 minutes. I think I've got that right, but if I'm mistaken, Anna or Maria will let you know. Um, okay, so God cannot be pictured, God must be pictured. This is the tragic conflict at the heart of Schoenberg's opera, Moses and Aaron, with which Sebastian Truskolaski opens his exceptional book, Adorno and the Ban on Images, which we're here to hear more about and discuss today. Instructed to return the old religious ways to the people of ancient Israel, Aaron has fashioned an effigy in the form of a golden calf, which the people joyously dance around in worship. Outraged at the display of idolatry, Moses, returned from Mount Sinai where he received the Ten Commandments, confronts his brother, arguing that God's eternity opposes idols' transience. Aaron, however, defends his actions, claiming it's certain that these folk, the people around him, will be sustained by proof of the eternal idea in the form of the image of the golden calf. 
God cannot be pictured, God must be pictured. This is the crucial contradiction at the heart of Sebastian's book, which treats it in turn as the, the contradiction animating Adorno's philosophical project. Only with Adorno, it's not God any longer that must but cannot be pictured, but another more secular form of ultimate redemptive state of being, a right life, perhaps a natural world where, if suffering is not completely absent, at least those forms of suffering caused by the structures of domination that are baked into, maybe even hardwired into, modern capitalist social relations will have disappeared. Is it possible, and I'm quoting Sebastian's uh, preface here, to invoke the image ban in its capacity as a philosophical historical marker rather than a theological edict to formulate a critical theory of the present? This is the question with which we have to do in Sebastian's carefully argued and beautifully written book, whose work is to show exactly what, what such a critical theory would look like. Placing the image ban at the center of Adorno's project allows Sebastian to demonstrate what in today's version of the administered world might be called the interdisciplinary reach and depth uh, of Adorno's thinking. The image ban is a problem with simultaneously theological, metaphysical, aesthetic, and socio-political implications. How might the language of religion be relevant, even subversive, in a world from which God has disappeared? How might a materialist metaphysics committed to thinking truly profane questions of social emancipation replace or at least do some of the work of what once went by the name of theology and indeed without collapsing into conservative hypostases? How can art point beyond the conditions, social but also more than social for Adorno, that produce it towards the possibility of being beyond domination? How can our political struggles be sustained both with and without images, the threat of the image's presence being to merely act as an illusory salve to our suffering, of its absence being that we lack a conception of what we're fighting for? Sebastian's book masters all these intertwined layers and registers of the problem of the image ban in Adorno, giving us a picture of much of his body of thought through this crucial lens. The book's organised into three... Um, broad sections or chapters covering Adorno's um, imminent critique of materialism, his re recovery, sort of paradoxical recovery of metaphysics and his aesthetics, which intersect around the problem of the image ban. Um, as I sort of said at the start, I don't want to sort of give um, an outline of the substance of the book in this short introduction, because hopefully the conversation will bring out the kind of juicy content. But what I do want to do before we um, engage in some questions is to state what I think the basic thrust of the book is and its intervention. So the Old Testament ban on images of God, translated into a secular context, essentially amounts to the claim that it's not possible, um, perhaps also not politically desirable, to picture a radically different kind of world to the one we live in from the perspective of our actual world both because the structures of thought we, we inhabit in this world are so thoroughly saturated with, at points perhaps also responsible for structures of material domination, and because imposing a blueprint in the act of social transformation only serves to reproduce the kinds of coercion from which we as social agents presumably aim to escape. One seems to be in a kind of deadlock here then, which calls to mind a line from Walter Benjamin's essay on the destructive character that serves as an epigraph to chapter three of Sebastian's book, 
dem destruktiven Charakter schwebt kein Bild vor. The destructive character sees no image hovering before him. The theoretical and practical question the ban on images raises is thus, does it mean that the only path out of the wrong life leads via destruction? The idea that it does, that, that only that Adorno's philosophy only offers a sort of destructive or destructively negative um, ways out of, if ways out at all, of our, um, uh, our uh, social conjuncture has been a standing criticism of Adorno in the scholarship on his work, and one that can certainly be defended. Sebastian's book, however, aims to move beyond this view without denying the central place of the negative and of ruthless criticism in Adorno's thought. The Adorno that emerges from the book is one whose imageless materialism is what Sebastian um, calls a thinking beyond itself, which resists uh, presentation. In the book's preface, he argues that this is a timely task. So this reconstruction, if you like, of Adorno's uh, materialism for at least two reasons, and I agree, so I'll just quote him for now. First, he says, if Adorno's bleak assessment of his own historical situation has only been confirmed by subsequent, by subsequent history since his own time, then his echo of the Marxian claim that only a ruthless criticism of all that exists can hold open the possibility of historical change gains poignancy. Second, and more modestly, if the reception of Adorno's work has long been dominated by a slightly singular interest in questions of normative legitimacy, then highlighting his project's paradoxically utopian thrust in all its negativity might serve to reframe Adorno's actuality beyond providing a prelude to the achievements of the Frankfurt School's so-called second generation. The dual motivation of Sebastian's book is therefore, on the one hand, to forego foreground him as an iconoclastic thinker and to distance him from the broadly liberal political orientation of um, much of a much Adorno scholarship which Sebastian claims is arguably at odds with Adorno's own thinking if not always with his stated intentions. So in a few moments we can hear more uh, and in more detail about how this project takes shape in Adorno and the ban on images. Um, before we do, though, I'll close by saying that although Sebastian's book doesn't expressly draw political conclusions from the problem of the image ban in Adorno's work, I think it does present us with a profoundly political um, problem. Images today are obviously all around us. They're the stuff of commodification used by marketing departments to sell our dreams to us in the form of consumer goods. They're also the vehicle in which social dreams are encapsulated on the stage of perhaps an ever more aestheticized electoral politics. In this spectacular social situation, Sebastian's book invites us to think again with Adorno about what a life freed from the need for images might look like. So those are my um, opening words, which I hope gave some idea to people perhaps familiar with Adorno's work, perhaps a little, um, those a little less familiar with Adorno's work uh, will learn more about the book from the questions that Sebastian and I have um, to discuss now. Uh, are you there, Sebastian? I am indeed. Thanks for that, Kat. Okay, great. So I, oh yeah, I see you now. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so the first question, um, thank you to you for, again, for inviting me to do this. It's really a great pleasure to talk about the book with you now. Um, the first question I wanted to ask leads off a little bit from where um, my opening comments finished. So in, uh, I'm thinking of sort of the more positive perhaps or um, more, uh, perhaps more political Adorno that you offer us or gesture towards in the book. Um, in the preface to the theory of the novel, Lukács very famously described uh, the, the sort of project of the Frankfurt School as being elaborated from the position of um, residents in a hotel called the Grand Hotel Abyss on the edge of a, an abyss, which was beautiful and equipped with um, every possible comfort um, where the residents sort of, you know, contemplate, um, contemplate nothingness between delicious meals and, and entertainments. And the point of, of Lukács's um, critique there, I take it, is sort of two-pronged. He, the, the contemplation of the abyss is, um, points to the kind of fatalism or relentless negativity that, uh, people often associate with Adorno's thinking and the contemplation of the abyss from the point of view of comfort uh, sort of goes hand in hand with a with the, an accusation of perhaps some bourgeois detachment of not being sufficiently engaged in um, in the political sphere. Um, I think the Adorno that comes out of your book is less fatalistic than that um, and more engaged or at least engageable than Lukács uh, and others have suggested too. So I just wondered if you could say a bit more about what motivated you to write the book from that point of view, um, what's wrong with that fatalist image of Adorno and why you wanted to tell a, a different story about him. Yeah, okay. Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, good. Just making sure the connection is stable. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Kat, for sharing these thoughts on my book. I'm 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 really touched that you uh, you read with such uh, with such care, uh, and it's really a pleasure to 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 hear your your thoughts and your responses on this book that just came out, but which has occupied me for uh, really quite a few years um, at this point. Um, in response to your question about uh, Lukács' kind of uh, derisory uh, swipe at um, at Adorno. Um, concerning this Grand Hotel Abyss, a kind of a bon mot that's really taken hold and is often, you know, quoted uh, at and uh, against him. Um, I mean, I think there's two parts or two ways to answer that question. Um, one, I think, is to do with a need to bear in mind or to keep in view the particular historical circumstances out of which that utterance kind of emerged, right? Just to kind of gain a bit of perspective on that. And uh, the second is to do, as you say, with the more fundamental motivation of my book, um, which is to kind of reframe Adorno as a less, you know, kind of uh, fatalistic thinker than he's sometimes made out to be. Um, so just a few words of, of, of context, maybe for um, those who haven't come across the, the turn of phrase uh, before. Uh, Georg Lukács um, was, of course, uh, a, a great um, influence on Adorno, <laughs> um, insofar as uh, Adorno's own uh, Marxism is also modeled very closely on, on a book of Lukács on, on history and class consciousness. And much of Adorno's kind of, uh, you know, approach to emancipatory uh, thinking, uh, you, you know, throughout his life remains indebted to that. Um, 
as people probably also know, Lukács um, later in his uh, uh, life had a political kind of turn of his own, which led to a slightly more orthodox uh, kind of Marxism, I think one might uh, say. Um, and ultimately what's being um, kind of negotiated in the conflict or the tension between them, I guess, is a way of thinking about the relationship between theory and praxis, let's call it, right? So what's at issue here are uh, different ways of, of, of reading Marx, right? Um, or at least that's one way of looking at it. Um, and these are concerns that I think are really quite typical of the circle around both Lukács and, uh, and Adorno. They're typical concerns of the interwar years in, in, um, in Germany. Um, and what I um, believe is that, um, you know, I mean, quite aside from the various things one might say about the historical reception of Marx during this period, about, you know, the appearance of the economical um, philosophical manuscripts of 1844 and so on. Um, what is at issue here, it seems to me, is uh, to do with which marks one wants to emphasize and what kind of methodological self-consciousness follows from that. Okay, um, And it seems to me that um, Adorno, uh, you know, from very early on is very uh, interested in and indebted to uh, um, a version of the young Marx, right, who um, is uh, still engaged in a project of uh, critically engaging with uh, the philosophical tradition in Germany that goes from Kant via Hegel and into uh, Adorno's and Lukács kind of present. And uh, the idea, I think, is to try and achieve something that Marx once, you know, kind of uh, calls in a famous letter to 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 his uh, erstwhile colleague Ruge, the, the ruthless criticism of all that exists. Right. Um, so this is, um, I think, the, pro, the, the point of departure from which Adorno proceeds. Yeah? Um, the idea is that if you continue to engage critically with a philosophical legacy, right, then eventually you may arrive at a standpoint of materialism from which something like societal transformation may yet become conceivable. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So the disagreement is one about uh, the, uh, the, the stakes, the possibilities and the options for something like revolutionary praxis, right, which by the time that uh, Lukács made this uh, famous swipe at Adorno, uh, you know, are really something that he quite, that they rather disagreed on, which, like I say, is something that's additionally complicated by the fact that Adorno's position is in fact quite heavily influenced by that of the younger Lukács, right? So you, you can just see the sorts of intricacies um, that uh, we're, we're, we're involved with here on, on one level. Now, the image of the fatalist Adorno that follows from that, I think, um, there's also a different version of this which persists into the present uh, and which is much to do with readings uh, by some of Adorno's more recent critics, including people like Agamben very prominently, also Jürgen Habermas, um, Adorno's erstwhile colleague from the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research. Um, but nonetheless, I would argue that the stakes remain fundamentally about um, you know, what it means to practically transform the material world we in one way or another inhabit, even if the political motivations um, informing the criticisms of someone like Lukács or Habermas are obviously very different. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, am I am I muted? No, I'm not. Okay, so you can hear me. That's good. Um, thank you um, for that. And I think so. What you what you sort of touched on there is um, the place of negativity, or the, the the kind of comparative place of negativity of critique. Um, versus let's say the speculative more, more speculative or um or um proscriptive uh, prescriptive sort of 
dimension of political theorizing. And I think we'll come back to that in, 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 in later questions that have to do with this question of utopia in particular um, that I'd like to ask about. Um, what I'm taking from your, your answer there is that the, the anti-fatalist Adorno sort of comes rather paradoxically seeming in a way, but comes via a, a, a kind of fidelity to that moment of ruthless criticism. Um, that he takes up from Marx and has perhaps is interpreted differently by the later Lukács, let's say. Um, but since we're talking about the relationship, you know, Adorno's materialism um, and how it relates to, uh, well, other, other kinds of, of Marxist framework, we might say, or other forms of historical materialism, I do have a question about that because in the book's first chapter, which is about Adorno's, what you call his imageless materialism, you sort of lay out a vision of materialism um, that Adorno you know, uh, subscribes to or develops, which is obviously very much um, sort of, uh, you know, centered on this idea of, of, of uh, the emancipation from, suffering in a way but it's not I mean the, the experience of bodily suffering seems to be central for him there to his, you know to his materialism um the experience of the suffering body and you know not only the human body I mean we can he sort of we in some of his writing on animality that's that's there too as well um which we don't have to go into right now necessarily but it makes me think of the discussion between Adorno and Benjamin in the 30s about this, about the tension between historical and anthropological materialism. Mm -hmm. In some, in an exchange of letters, as you know very well, Adorno accuses Benjamin of sort of trying to roll back from a, a, his, from a historicist um, point of view towards focusing on the experience of the suffering body as the kind of locus for the motivation of political action yeah and as there's something universal and transhistorical about the experience of the suffering body that actually you know enables us to sympathize with um class oppression um in different times and different places or different forms of oppression perhaps and adorno says you know he he sort of takes issue with benjamin over this um and finds it uh to be problematic and yet in the version of his materialism in your book, the body's central for him too. So I wanted to, I mean, you don't have to necessarily talk about the conflict between them, but if you could maybe uh, say something about the body for Adorno and what his materialism consists in. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. That's an interesting question. I mean, the, the, the conflict between Adorno and Benjamin, the disagreement over materialism, the disagreement over dialectics in their correspondence from the 1930s is in some ways, of course, well known, I think, and well, well, well documented. Uh, the, the point is that uh, Benjamin had, you know, taken a kind of self-conscious turn towards a version of Marxism, at, at least as he saw it. Um, which differs from Adorno on a few crucial uh, points, uh, and in particular, one of the the, the issues uh, at, at stake here, right, is is a um, uh, is is a conception of the dialectic which is much closer to Hegel in Adorno than it is to to, to Benjamin. But but that's by the by. The, the point is about the 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 suffering body. Well, I think both Benjamin and Adorno uh, have in common, right, despite the kind of outward disagreements in the in the letters, yeah. 
uh, a wish to and an interest in overcoming uh, conventional classical conceptions of, of, let's call it humanism, right, but also of the human kind of more generally, right, mm -hmm. which um, have much in common, although they do take some different turns in the particular ways they come to articulate those. So I think the one of the key concepts that you're referring to, and which I happened to discuss last week, um, during a different book launch with uh, Daniel Morenza um, is that of an anthropological materialism as Adorno refers to it in one of those letters to, to Benjamin and as Benjamin lays it out in his famous essay on, on surrealism, right? Um, the idea here is this that for Benjamin there is, I think one might say generally, I hope I'm not being un un unfair here, there's a more positive vision of a possibility, right, of uh, forging a different kind of relationship uh, between humankind and, let's say, technology, right, mm -hmm. uh, or human nature and culture via the, the medium, not the means of technology, right, uh, which is not in this form shared by Adorno, right. Um, Adorno wants, I think, ultimately something similar, which is a, a radical reimagination, a rad radical recasting of the uh, relationship between, let's say, for example, humankind and nature and other times he figures this relationship more philosophically in terms of subject and object. Um, the, the point of access to the whole conversation about where we might even begin reconfiguring this relationship in a way that I think is fundamentally common to them both, right, uh, for Adorno is, is more resolutely negative, right? So that uh, suffering, literal, physical, somatic suffering becomes the kind of index, right, of the experience of non-identity, as he would call it, I guess, in the world. Okay, so the, the state of alienation uh, that we uh, feel, quite literally, right, in our in our, in our day-to-day -day lives, becomes a point of access for a conversation about what lies on the other side of that, right? And I think the disagreement between Adorno and Benjamin, at least at that particular point in their relationship, is over the uh, particular means for figuring, imagining, or thinking that, so to speak. Yeah, so that for Adorno, exactly the point of access is a negative one, whereas for Benjamin, there are other also ultimately somatic impulses that gesture in a slightly different direction, right? It's 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 the stuff about innervation, it's the stuff about shock, it's the stuff about film and so on, which Adorno doesn't share in quite this way. But I think the, the motivation of overcome and overcoming of the condition of you know the human with a capital T and a capital H, so to speak, is 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 common to them both. Yeah. Okay. Um great, thanks. So so I like the phrase, you know, the the suffering body as 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 an index of, you know, what of, of the of the social problem. Um, Benjamin, you said, has got a more positive vision of um, the potentials for sort of uh, reconfiguring the relation between nature and culture, human and technology, or the body and technology, perhaps better. Um, and more positive vision, perhaps in the kind of evaluative sense, qualitative sense, um, but also perhaps, and maybe, I mean, I'm maybe being provocative here, but perhaps also in the sense of is more willing to try to envisage. Um, and this moves us to, you know, from the, the sort of materialism um, that you describe in, in the book towards the question of image and what does an imageless materialism um, look like? So, as I've said already, you know, the central question of your book really is uh, about what it is as the danger inherent in trying to achieve social change by 
means of an of an image of a ready given blueprint um, and trying to sort of impose this on reality. Um, and this is one of the key, this is a problem of utopian thinking, utopian social thinking to cool, no? Um, there's a very famous interview that you and I know well between Adorno and Bloch from 1964, where they talk about this. And I think Bloch is an even more kind of dogmatic, well, doctrinaire interlocutor for the positive than Benjamin is. So um, that interview, I think, and the ideas there crystallize what for Adorno is the problem with trying to positively imagine a different world or a different state of affairs and to achieve it that way. Could you say a bit more um, about Adorno's, you know, position in in that in that piece or on on that topic? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. That's that's a, an, an interesting question and a really interesting interview. If people haven't read it, it's widely available. I do recommend it. Um, okay. Well, I mean, as you say, look, fun fundamentally, the question of the image ban for Adorno is one of how do you figure, how do you imagine, by what means do you, uh, you know, begin to kind of even think about uh, a condition that is by definition beyond what currently is, so to speak. Yeah. How do you begin to uh, gesture beyond the status quo? Okay. Um, and uh, he approaches this under a number of different viewpoints, and he tries to play this out or hash this out or rehearse this problem in a number of different arenas, right, uh, that have a slightly different, um, you know, emphasis depending on what he's what he's talking about. Ultimately, I think I'm not giving too much away uh, when I say that um, it's something that uh, happens for him, so to speak, at yeah, this moment of, of stepping out, this moment of stepping beyond happens in the realm of a certain kind of art, right? But I guess mm -hmm. we're going to get to that a little bit later. Um, the point in the conversation between him and Bloch that you refer to, of course, Ernst Bloch, um, uh, Adorno's slightly older um, friend and erstwhile mentor with whom he developed a later uh, very contentious uh, relationship, the author of the famous 1918 book um, on, on the spirit of utopia, which was important for Adorno and that whole generation also for 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 Benjamin um, also tackles this this question and you know decades later during this radio interview in the 1960s they come to kind of disagree over what the particular uh, role of images is in, in in thinking in imagining and bringing about a world beyond the spellbound sphere of existence as Adorno might call it yeah um, and I think um, Adorno would probably, hopefully, at least as I read him, underwrite what I'm about to say, which is that you know one, one mustn't posit the image ban as like a, a dogmatic, transhistorical, eternally valid uh, organizing principle for the way we think about, for example, you know, utopia or politics or whatever else, right? It is something which, at the current conjuncture, uh, when he is speaking to Bloch in the 1960s, also in the decades before and in the years after, before his death in 1969 appears to Adorno to be the kind of methodologically sound way into a conversation about what ought to be, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? Um, and he, I think, you know, despite the various disagreements that they have in this conversation, I think they do agree uh, on this one point that neither, you know, images of redeemed life nor, you know, the uh, strategic banning of such images uh, are, are eternally valid kind of standpoints. It depends a little bit on, you know, the particular situation one is uh, dealing with. And incidentally, you know, just to make a, a bridge with this point about materialism that we mentioned earlier, the, the particular kind of syntactic uh, uh, weighting uh, of, of, of that term is to do with a uh, point of departure for Adorno, which is a, a criticism of a mode of thinking that he refers to as, as abbildend, as representational, right, which is a current in 
philosophical materialisms that comes rises to a certain kind of prominence in in the Soviet Union, uh, and of course Adorno being you know the, the 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 quote unquote Western Marxist yeah for want of a better better term that he that he is right uh, polemically positions himself against yeah a certain kind of Soviet orthodoxy which is also partly you know the the reason or the grounds for the disagreement with with um, with with Bloch. Right. So in a way, you know, a question that's interesting to think about for both Adorno and Bloch and Benjamin um, is, you know, what, what kind of a, a materialism do they do they wind up articulating and uh, what kind of a Marxism or what kind of, you know, uh, politically transformative or emancipatory thinking is possible on the basis of that. And this is where the emphases kind of diverge so that Adorno strategically and polemically decides to kind of outlaw, to ban <laughs> as it were, the picturing of a better world in, in, in full-blooded sorts of terms. Right. And so the um, the abundant, so the, the sort of representational thinking that you were, that you mentioned and Adorno's uh, distaste for that, um, just to flesh out the point, or perhaps you can respond if, if I'm, um, uh, you know, saying something you wouldn't agree with, that this sort of abbildendes Denken is connected to a rather simple base superstructure kind of um, way of thinking about the being and consciousness relation, right? This determination of consciousness by social being, which is a very standard Marxian way of thinking about the how structures of thought get produced, if you like, right? Um, in your book, and I do kind of want to come back to some of the theological stuff in a moment, because I think that's obviously central. But um, I think in, in your book, there's a, a sense in which um, Adorno is, uh, he sees structures of thought as themselves constitutive of social realities, right? Um, that he argues, I mean, you talked about representational thinking, but another very important concept for him in negative dialectics is obviously identity thinking, um, which becomes politically very important for him after 1945 and his attempts to, are you there, Sebastian? Yeah, yeah, I'm there, I'm there. Sorry, I turned off my camera because the connection okay. was flagging. Okay, okay, great. Let me know if, if mine goes um, mm -hmm. dodgy too and I'll turn it off. Um, yeah, so um, identity thinking is really one of the central problems of Adorno's whole philosophical project, right? It's this idea that conceptual thought, which groups particulars under universals and treats sort of historically singular, real living beings, and not necessarily living either, um, as just examples of a type, yeah? That's what he calls identity thinking in um, negative dialectics. That that kind of thinking is um, creates in a certain way is is fundamental and also creates certain forms of or gives rise to certain forms of material social domination. And the example that he um, you know refers to and elaborates after 1945 is in the Third Reich. Um, the treatment of people as examples of type, 
Um, and so I just wanted to, to, to ask you to flesh out a bit more that relation between, you know, uh, the structures of thought and the sort of forms of social or material um, power. Yeah, right. Thanks for that. Thank you. Um, okay. Uh, I mean, we've talked a good deal uh, until now about, you know, materialism and the the, the particular kind of currency of, of, of Adorno's Marxism and so on. And this is all there and this is all important, I think. But I think it is a partial aspect of something that is ultimately larger than that um, in Adorno's thinking. And it is connected to the structures of thought that you describe and that I think he... Um, goes to some lengths to, to to kind of unpack in a in a in a variety of, of his books. I think what Adorno is fundamentally interested in, and maybe this brings him into the orbit uh, of an improbable kind of bedfellow, which is uh, which is Heidegger. Um, I think Adorno is interested in 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 the problem of modernity, in the problem of experience under the conditions of modernity, and in the problem of you know what it might mean to recast the relationship of something like you know the human to something like the world. Yeah, to clunkily borrow. Uh, <laughs> A Heideggerian kind of idiom, yes, um, and it, it is yes to do in part uh, with rethinking the material conditions, but it is also um, in a sense to do with the way that we not only inhabit but also apprehend the world, kind of in in thought, intellectually, as it were, yeah, and the the. The, the difficulty or the kind of, you know, inherent paradox or contradiction or something at the heart of this for Adorno, which has earned him a lot of criticism, uh, incidentally, um, especially from, from some of the figures associated with the, you know, so-called second generation of the Frankfurt School, um, is uh, to do with um, the fact that on the one hand, he diagnoses that we are only able to think the relationship with the world, to think at all, yeah, uh, conceptually. And mm -hmm. conceptual thought always means the subordination of particulars under universals, which Adorno, to the extent that he is a, a materialist, you know, a peculiar one, but nonetheless, always takes to have a, um, a direct material kind of correlate. Yeah, the subordination of particulars under universals is a kind of epistemic violence, we might say, yeah, which plays out in reality, for example, as you said, uh, in, in the machinations of, of, of Nazi Germany and so on. Yeah? The, the erasure, the eradication of difference, quite literally. Yeah? Um, so the, the, the problem that he's faced with, yeah, and this is the point that the second generation are often so critical of, is, well, you know, if you diagnose that, that uh, the very means by which we are able to think, and they are the only means that are available to us positively, yeah? if they are so pervasive, as they are so prevalent, okay, as Adorno says, then uh, by what means would you imagine an exit from that? What does it mean to think something beyond what is, right, in the existent or available terms, okay? Uh, and this is, uh, I think, fundamentally the issue, right, around which or uh, that one can try and make sense of through this figure of the image ban, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is um, the question of how do you intimate, right, something that lies beyond? How do you begin to gesture towards or how do you begin to kind of, you know, circumscribe um, a mode of relating to the world, okay, both uh, materially and intellectually, as it were. I mean, they amount to the same thing in the end, okay. Um, that that does not fall into those traps. Yeah. How do you um, stack up the building blocks in such a way that they amount to more than the sum of their parts? And this is where art comes to play a very central role for Adorno, right? It's because it it stages, as it were, right, um, the uh, mode of thinking that he has in mind, right becomes a kind of a laboratory of sorts. It bears quite, um, it bears quite a considerable metaphysical weight in that respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm, I'm going to ask a, a bit more about art in a moment, but I just wanted to um, go back to what you said there about the, the of, um, conceptual thinking and identity thinking as the subsumption of particulars under universals. 
does not capture, cannot capture, returning us to what you said about his materialism, the reality of lived embodied experience, right? Um, that doesn't, that's what he means by non-identity. Um, uh, just to connect it back to, to materialism for a moment. That's right. Um, two more questions I'd like to ask if we've got time and if we don't, then, you know, the organizers can, can jump in, but they're connected, I guess. Um, I mean, how, how do we imagine, how do we think how do we think um, uh, a difference or a, a transformation of, of the status quo if conceptual thought is sort of so tainted and then the image that offers itself um, is, is, um, is also sort of um, under erasure. Um, you, in the final chapter of your book, you do claim that natural beauty is one of the areas which for Adorno um, can begin to gesture towards something like a reconciled um, world. I'd like you to say, could you say a bit more about that? This is gonna be a tall order in the interest of time. A bit more about that and the role that art can play in that, which you, you just spoke about a moment ago, but also the concept of nature, because going back to Lukacs, you know, who did influence Adorno very much on, on this nature, the nature, what is the nature of natural beauty? Nature is always, is always already second nature for Adorno. It's all, it's always constructed. It's never given. Um, we can think about that in various environmental ways, but also, um, you know, epistemological ways as well. So, and how do how do images of natural beauty gesture towards something like a, a more reconciled position, both in the terms of art and of beauty? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's of course a. It, I mean, in some ways, a very difficult uh, question to answer, and in another way, you know, attempted in, in in one word. You say, how do they do it? Well, they do it negatively, right? <laughs> that's uh, that's often Adorno's answer to 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 a lot of things. Um, yeah. You know the the, the particular um, framing that he gives to his you know famous and interesting I think exploration of the concept of natural beauty in his you know posthumous uh, fragmentary um, um, aesthetic theory um, is is an engagement um, with the works of Kant and Hegel right so this is an engagement with with Hegel's famous lectures on on aesthetics on the one hand and with uh, Kant's uh, critique um, of the power of judgment on the other. Um, and it is to do with the structures of thought that we described earlier in one sense. Sorry, I'm going to try to string all these things together because what, what happens in Adorno so often is that you have kind of overlapping registers, right, in which he tries to, 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 to hash out or play out, um, you know, a, a, a set of concerns in a particular way. So um, the aesthetic for, for, for Kant, of course, um, becomes a concern because uh, Kant in his, uh, you know, three critiques is concerned amongst other things, right, with, uh, with, with the structure, the conditions of possibility, shall we call it, of, of judgment, right? Uh, and Adorno, to the degree that he is engaging, as I said before, you know, when I made this point about him modeling himself on the young Marx to a degree, is engaging with a philosophical tradition which is amongst other things concerned in just that, yeah? How does thought work, right? Um, now, the peculiarity of aesthetic judgment for, for Kant, of course, is that it is, um, as he says, uh, reflexive, 
right? And what Adorno takes that to mean, okay, is that it is a kind of uh, moment of almost short circuiting, right, in the structure of judgment where it becomes possible, yeah, in thinking to attain a moment of kind of stepping outside, mm -hmm. right? So he's very interested in this moment of kind of delight, right, that Kant describes an aesthetic experience. Um, and he takes it to be a uh, moment in which something like, let's call it nature, just now as a placeholder, yeah, quote unquote nature, um, allows one to gesture towards something beyond the spellbound sphere of existence, right? Mm -hmm. Now, well, what is this nature that we're talking about here? Well, as you say, um, for Adorno, nature is always what Lukács calls, you know, that's where he gets the term from, from the 1916 theory of the novel, is always second nature, right? We're always talking about the world of convention, right? Not um, about an immediate access to a kind of romanticized nature that lies somewhere beyond, okay? Um, and this is where we get into the kind of dialectical arabesques of Adorno's thinking, right? Because it's a particular um, experience of something that, let's call it nature, which is supposed to stand for a certain kind of beyond, but to which you have no immediate access, mm -hmm. right? which is supposed to, um, you know, kind of uh, appear fleetingly, right, in a in a moment of, let's call it aesthetic delight, right, to stick with, with, with Kant's, um, uh, you know, vo vocabulary, but which for Adorno always has to be a negative experience of aesthetic delight experienced as a kind of somatic suffering that comes out in an engagement with a certain kind of art right so what exactly is supposed to be nature in the nature here is i think up for 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 debate right it's certainly not a return to any kind of you know authentic anything right through an unworking of the structures of judgment through an engagement with a certain kind of you know let's call it tentatively conceptuality that plays out in art you are supposed to um be invited right into a, a kind of realm right where your body tells you as it were that there is a kind of beyond right uh, and it is the reflection on this very fact so to speak that is supposed to prompt yeah your let's call it i don't know uh, wish or desire right to think a certain kind of politics yeah to, to think thinking differently and it is only in the experience of art which is the privileged realm of this taking place so to speak yeah um that adorno thinks that is really in the most full-blooded sense possible, right? Um, but it presupposes so much of what Adorno had given us in the preceding decades, right? That to really make sense of that, I think is um, is is at times kind of difficult, right? Because it is a very philosophical engagement. It's a philosophy of art, right? Yeah. In, in a in in a way, right? And he he claims, right? This is what I say about you know these overlapping registers, or you know the 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 way he presents this is that this. Um, that this, you know, process that or this experience that he's describing, that this occurs in particular works of art, right? So he will uh, go to great lengths to try and demonstrate how this happens when you listen to certain, you know, songs by Schubert, or mm. uh, how this happens when you brush language against the certain uh, against the grain in a certain way by reading Ceylan. And it is then, or especially Hölderlin, actually, and this is maybe not a bad way to connect it back to the nature point, right? Um, it's a certain vision of, of nature that I think he's fascinated um, with in, 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 in Hölderlin. Uh, what that says about an ecological kind of thinking, well, both more and less than one might think, right? Yeah. Because uh, I think if you really take Adorno's, um, the full weight of Adorno's project on board, right, then the overhaul, the recalibration of what it means to think or be in the world at all, right, would have to be so far reaching that a completely different kind of relationship to, let's call it nature, would emerge, right? But if you don't follow him on to that, 
um, or on that path all the way, right? Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to imagine uh, how it might give any, you know, kind of like practical basis for thinking about, you know, I don't know, fracking or whatever, right? Sure. But a metaphysical conception that he's got going there. Yeah, right. Which, I mean, I'm going to, um, I think it's good for us probably to hand the floor to other people for questions in a moment, but just to maybe... And the, just to maybe kind of um, recap and, and close on what you just said, there's a part of me that wants to, um, there's a part of me that wants to kind of make practical some of this sometimes when thinking with Adorno, you know, to say, well, where do we get to with this idea of art as gesturing towards, you know, as, as, as through an embodied um an embodied experience and perhaps also through a slightly more Kantian aesthetic experience as a democratic space of um, subjective universal disagreement about um, about judgments of taste and so on. Um, where do we get to with that? How can we operationalize that? And sometimes I want to say, I want to sort of connect it back to education after Auschwitz and Vaspedeutet mm -hmm. um, und der Vergangenheit and say that, you know, that Adorno sees aesthetic education as fulfilling or capable of fulfilling a particular kind of social mission. Um, but then, <laughs> you know, the examples and the, the sort of examples that you cite from aesthetic theory are so rarefied and possibly also so elitist that it's difficult to, to know how to match those two up. But, you know, I, I think there's something, there's something there um, yeah. for another day. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a tension always between, you know, Adorno, the public intellectual of the Federal Republic, you know, with his kind of uh, concerns in, 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 you know, I mean, pe people make out like Adorno was not interested in politics. He, he very much was, you know, he had plenty to say about, you know, particular party programs of the SPD and, you know, the pedagogical reforms and all manner of stuff. I mean, you know, this was uh, a politically engaged person in the kind of con conventional sense. But when I say, you know, what kind of politics can one glean from Adorno uh, in a more full-blooded sense, right? Um, I think one would have to go along for the ride. And then and this is a very, very far reaching, you know, like almost cosmic kind of overhaul of what it means to think and of what it means to be, which is why I um, asserted, you know, the, the kind of un improbable connection to, 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 to Heidegger. I don't think they rule each other out. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think one has to want to go along for the for the, the ride, as it were. Yeah. And in both of them, uh, art comes to bear a lot of that metaphysical weight, I guess, which is another parallel. Um, OK, well, I think I've monopolized your time enough. Um, thanks for your answers to those questions. Um, I really enjoyed your book and um, I hope other people have and will as well. Sorry. Thanks, Kat.